Good morning, Icon. I am glad to be with you guys. We are just about to, uh, we're one week away from finishing up our small little series in Romans. Uh, and then we are going to transition into a series that we're calling Why Us, Why Here? Uh, we're going to be looking at some of the, the values of Icon Church and uh, who we are as a church, who God is calling us to be, to, to value. And then we're going to specifically look at why that matters for the city that God has placed us in. So I'm really excited for that. Uh, coming up. And speaking of coming up, I do want to just let you know uh, a little bit of changes that we're going to be making here soon to uh, how we're doing our online liturgy. And so, as you know, for the last, gosh, 19 months now, we have been uh, recording sermons every single week and uh, putting them online for people who cannot gather with us, and especially when no one could gather. This is such a great space for us to uh, still sit under God's word together and still worship together, though we were separated. And, and now uh, we're going to be making a shift to where instead of recording the sermon uh, every single week and then posting it online, we're actually going to record uh, our live in-person services. And then we're going to post that to our website every single week. And so if you are in a place where uh, you're still not able to gather, whether that's uh, because you have a, you're more at risk or you're immunocompromised or you know or love someone who is, uh, I would invite you to continue to take advantage of that. To, to watch, although it won't be up on a Sunday, you can still watch it throughout the week. Um, but if you are in a place where you can come back and gather with us, I would encourage you to do that. We, we believe that the Bible commands us to come together in person in order to encourage one another. And so there's something so rich and real to our faith when we actually uh, correspond with one another as we watch other people sing and as we watch other people sit under the word and we respond together in communion and worship. It's just totally different. And so I would encourage you to uh, come back if you're able, if you are not at risk uh, and you're just in that place where you're used to watching church online, I would invite you to come back. Take advantage of it when you need to, but make it a priority to, to come back together with God's people. And I, I think you'll be encouraged. Uh, let's, uh, let's jump in. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray, and we're going to go through these short little verses that we have for today. Father, Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that each and every week you demonstrate its effectiveness that is that is separate from any power that we have within ourselves, that your word is alive, God, and works in us and confronts us and comforts us in the ways that we need. And so I pray that today, as we talk about some of the difficult things in life, and we think together on what it, what, how the, the love of Jesus Christ changes that, changes how we endure through trials and storms, I pray that your spirit would help us, God, that we would not hear what we're going to share today and simply have it fall on deaf ears, but it would give us a sense of comfort, especially for those of us who are in a trial right now, that we would, be, that we would feel comforted. And for those of us who are not in a trial, not in a storm, don't feel any unique sense of suffering, I pray that today would at least prepare us for the day that that inevitably comes. And that today, God, as we walk away, that your spirit would place in our hearts the significance of the love of Jesus Christ. We'd be moved by it. Our worship to you would be all the more won over. And that we would trust you in the deepest places of our heart, God. 
Father, would you help us in that? Would you unite your power with my weak words and as a, as a, as a consequence bear the fruit of comfort and of assurance of even expectant joy in the midst of suffering, God? Lord, we entrust this to you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Unexpected seasons have a way of demonstrating unreliable sources of power. That's what the state of Texas realized uh, earlier this year in what was one of the worst freezes that they've ever endured. And so, uh, as most of you know, I actually grew up in the Dallas area down in Texas. And so uh, I was here in Seattle, you know, I live here and was watching a lot of family and friends go through this. And it was a terrible situation uh, watching my dad have to boil water in order to just drink water because uh, the, the, the pipeline was, was contaminated and uh, watching them go through these rolling blackouts in the midst of what is a very, very, very uh, different winter season than what they're used to, having temperatures that reach down into negative nine and negative 10 with the wind chill. It's not something that Texas ever really experiences. And, and in that, what, what, what the state of Texas saw is that unexpected seasons have a way of clarifying, even showing or revealing unreliable sources of power. You see, it, it was an unexpected season, and when the state of Texas goes into winter, uh, a lot of their power grid actually begins to kind of taper down because most of their electricity is moved is used in the summer when it's incredibly hot uh, and everyone needs their house air conditioned. And so the, the state of Texas was, was caught off guard with something that they were not expecting. And what made it even worse is that the state of Texas, with its little weird independence mindset, it's the only state that has an electrical grid that is completely separated from the rest of the United States. There are two electrical grids in the United States, the one for all the other states and then the one for Texas. Uh, that Texas independence has worked itself out to where they are totally wanting to be self-reliant and depend on what they can produce and what they found in a season that was unexpected, that what they thought they had that was enough, that they could rely on themselves for was not enough. And so there were reports of, of, of people dying, trying to stay warm, not knowing what carbon monoxide is. People having to boil drinking water just so that they can stay refreshed and sleeping with blanket after blanket after blanket in every jacket that they could find, all because an unexpected season showed them their unreliable source of power. And what we're talking about today is very much so connected to that. That there, there are unexpected seasons that come into our life. There are, there are trials and storms that kind of knock the breath out of us that we don't see coming, that we never would have thought we would have to endure. And those seasons have a way of revealing the, way, the, 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 the sources of power that we've been tapping into all along when we were still in a good season, how those are utterly insufficient and deficient to get us through a season of trial and a storm. 
Trials and storms and suffering has a way of clarifying us what we actually need, kind of awakening us to all the other all the other things that we've been depending on, all the other things that we've been self-sufficient in, that we've been able to build this great life for ourselves and we're super capable and we can we can kind of pull the levers of society and what's gonna come out is something good. Now, trials and storms. Suffering that is unexpected has a way of hitting us in the gut and in a way waking us up to what we actually need. Because self-sufficient power, self-dependence, self-reliance will not get you through a season of suffering. It will not. Of course you can be self-sufficient when everything is going good. Of course you can be self-reliant and self-dependent when everything is going good. You can be deluded into thinking that you have the power to create this good life and to really make yourself immune to suffering, immune to hardship. But then something comes in, something happens like a global pandemic, something you did not see happening. And then all of a sudden you are left reeling. Because the whole time that you've been self-reliant and self-dependent, you've been deluded to think that that's enough. And then suffering shows you that that is not Enough, And so you are left reeling and searching for a source of power that will get you through that unexpected season. And today, as we look at this text in Romans 8, these short two little verses, the Apostle Paul, in many ways, I think, is, is trying to get us to tap into what that source of power is that can get us through that season of suffering. That could not just help us to grit our teeth and make it through, which in many ways would be enough, but can actually give us a sense of comfort and a sense of joy, a sense of safety, even when it feels like our life is falling apart. And so Paul, as you'll see, I want, I want to read the text and kind of frame it up on, on how we're going to talk about this today. In verse 35, he asks a rhetorical question, two of them. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Paul's trying to show, gives these rhetorical questions in order for us to see that all the things that he's mentioning here have no, <coughs> have no power to separate us, to uh, distance us from the love of Jesus. And friends, that's good news. And I'm, I'm, I'm guessing, I would bet, that even for us as Christians, we read something like that and we think, I know that I should, that, that I should see that as good news, but I don't really know why. I, do, I don't really know why the love of Jesus Christ should be the reliable, or even experientially how it is, the reliable source of power to get me through danger or tribulation or sick or sword or famine or nakedness. And so what I want to do today is I want to go through and from this text kind of, kind of bounce up and at a higher level talk about two ways in which the love of Christ sustains us, that, that, that it's good news that trial and storm and suffering cannot separate us from his love, and how that gets us through, okay? And so to start off, I, I, I want to point out one thing, and then we're going to get into, into those two little, uh, two little points. And at first, it's this. 
Paul is intentionally leaning in here to what he calls the love of Christ. Paul is not someone who is loose with his words. He doesn't say things that uh, he doesn't really think through. Uh, you know, when we think about the love of Christ or the love of Jesus or the love of God, we, we throw out all these terms and they're totally, uh, we think they're all connected to this, to this one idea. But in many ways, uh, the love of Christ, and then even what he's going to say later in this text, the, the love of God in Christ Jesus are the same thing at a high level, but they're tapping into, they're, they're pointing out or trying to lean into one specific thing. And so here he's, he's not talking about what he's going to sell, what he's going to call the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord later in this chapter, but he's talking about the love of Christ. He wants us to think specifically about Jesus Christ and his love, how it is expressed to us. And so this is not just at a high level, the love of God that we just, you know, we throw around as this loose term, but specifically in the heart of Jesus, there is a love and the way that that love is, how it's expressed, what it is, is what is going to be able to get us through tribulation or sword or danger or famine. So setting that up, I want to talk about two ways in which it does. I want, I want to talk about two ways in which the love of Jesus specifically, that his love not being separated from us, us not being distanced from his love in the midst of trial, why that's good news. And so first, the, love, the reason why that's good news is because the love of Christ sustains us in trial because it's a love that comes after us. It's a love that comes after us. And we see this in the biblical story, in, in the gospel. You see, we as Christians believe that, that Jesus is both fully God and fully man, existing in one person. And before he became a human being or, or put on flesh, he was the Son of God that eternally existed with God the Father. That he was in a relationship of, of love and of richness and of vulnerability where the Father, the Son, and the Spirit were rejoicing in one another and loving one another for all of eternity. That before there was time, before there was anything created, there was love in the heart of God. John 1 talks about this. That Jesus is the one who has come from the Father's side. The, the Greek word there is literally from his bosom. It's as if to show that between this father and this son, there has existed this close relationship in which they, they're tight, they're close, they're near one another, they rejoice in one another. And it's in that context that John 1 says that he has come from, it's from that relationship that he's come from. And why has he come? What, this is so basic Christianity, I understand that, but we have to revisit it and really see the richness of it. Why did Jesus come? What was it that encouraged him, that exhorted him, that, that drew him out of that close relationship and nearness with the Father in order to come to earth, put on flesh as a human being, and save us? What was it that drew the heart of Jesus out to be able to endure leaving the praises of heaven, leaving for a time the unique closeness and nearness he had 
with his father, the one in whom he was in his side. It was his, his love. It was his love that drew him out because his love saw human beings in a condition that they could not save themselves from. That we as human beings have, have sinned against God. We've turned our back on God, and that is a dangerous place to be. That is the danger, that is the risk of humanity. That we have chosen to turn away from the God of life in order to create our own pitiful little idols and our own pitiful little life. And that has earned for us judgment and wrath. Seeing that, seeing that, that though human beings are, like, like the Bible says, that we are all sheep who have gone astray, that no one does good. Seeing that, seeing our dangerous situation, the heart of Jesus drew toward us. The heart, the, the, the love of Jesus drew toward us. We see this even in Romans. Look at, look at uh, Romans 5 right here. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so the love of Jesus is a love that draws toward us when we are in danger, when we are in need. And that's good news, friends. That's good news, that the heart of Jesus, the reason why it's good news that, that the love of Jesus can never be distanced from us or separated from us, even in the midst of trial, is because there's no trial in which the heart of Jesus doesn't move toward us. If he moved toward us in love, came after us when we, like that text says, were ungodly, totally, when we were nothing more than sinners, and of course we're still sinners, but we're something more now, we're also justified in Christ. If he came after us when we had nothing to offer, if his love, if his heart was drawn toward us when we had our backs away from him, then what makes us think that he will not continue to move toward us? Because when he moved toward us in that first way, in saving us by his blood, it was he moved toward us in love in order to, to save, in order to reconcile, in order to give us a safe place, even though we were in danger. And in the same way, when we are in trial, when we are in storms, we have the heart of Jesus, the love of Jesus that burst toward us. That we're not alone in trial. That when we are suffering, when we go through storms, we do not have to give in to the lie of isolation. That I've got to figure this out. I've got to figure this out because if I don't, no one else will. No one's coming for me. No one's going to save me. And so I need to just grit my teeth and make it through this trial. But with Someone with a, with a heart like Jesus, who moves toward us in our pain, who isn't distanced from us in trial, that can help us to feel safe and seen. You see, there, so there's these, uh, there's these uh, in psychology, there's these things called attachment theories. Uh, and basically what it is, it's, it's, uh, it, it tries to clarify that when, when a, a baby comes into a family, that baby is looking for how he or she can attach to their 
main caregiver. And so from day one, you know, they come, they pop out of the womb, and then immediately they're looking for someone who's going to care for them. And there's a few other attachment theories about how that goes right and then how that can go wrong. And when it goes wrong, what it tends to do is create in the child the idea that they have to figure it out on their own. You see, they, they, they maybe have a, an early childhood in which their cries were never heard by their main caregiver, or God forbid, their cries were silenced and maybe even abused by their main caregiver. And when that happens, they de- the, the human beings develop this outlook on life in which not only am I alone, but no one else is safe to be trusted. So I need to figure it out by myself. I need to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I need to be my own protector. I need to be my own savior because no one else is safe and no one else is coming for me. Friends, is that how you endure suffering? Is that what you think when a trial or storm comes into your life? Do you think you are alone? That you have to figure it out because no one else is coming for you. The love of Jesus Christ shows you that that is not the way that you should be thinking as a Christian. Because he's already demonstrated his love, his desire to move toward us in our pain, to move toward us in our storm, so that we know we're not alone. We don't have to go and then be self-reliant or (coughs) self-dependent in the midst of unexpected seasons. But rather we can expect that we have someone coming for us who's going to be with us. That's the first way. The love of Christ sustains us in trial because it's a love that comes after us. But second, the reason why this is significant, this idea of not being separated from the love of Christ, is because the love of Christ sustains us in trial because it's a love that understands. I want you to notice something. When you look at this text, you see Paul lay out this list that almost maybe isn't exhaustive, but covers quite the spectrum of suffering. Look at what he says. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? You see, these these things cover this great spectrum of of danger and of trial and of storm and of suffering. And I wonder if you look to that list, which of those do you think Jesus himself has experienced? Jesus himself, having put on flesh and lived a human life in the midst of a broken world, has experienced each and every every one of these things. Tribulation. Do you you remember when he was in the garden, in the garden of Gethsemane, he's asking for God to, if there's any other way to do this, if there's any other way to save mankind other than going through this route of the cross, can can we please do that? And it says that he was under such stress that he literally sweat droplets of blood bursting the capillaries in his forehead because of the stress he was under. That's tribulation. That's also distress. What's going to happen? I I know that God has called me to to walk through this route of the cross, and I know why, I know what's on the other side, but also my heart feels distressed. What's going to happen? How am I going to endure that? 
or persecution. Jesus, his entire adult life, especially in his three years of ministry, lived under persecution that culminated in climax in the cross, most certainly, but he lived a life of persecution. You look at the Gospels and you see that the Pharisees and the scribes and the chief priests are always coming after him, always trying to ruin his reputation, always trying to catch him in a lie, trying to catch him in something so that they can kill him. Of course, he's experienced persecution or famine. Do you remember when Jesus went through the desert for 40 days, having fasted that entire time, knowing what it's like to be hungry? Or nakedness. Jesus Christ torn from his clothes while being whipped before the cross. Or danger. Always living under danger. Always, not just in the not just when he's getting whipped by some Roman guard or being carried to the cross, but in his whole ministry under danger. These Pharisees and these scribes want to kill him or sword. Of course, Jesus Christ knows that one. He himself was subjected to the sword of Rome through the means of crucifixion. And what I, what I want you to see in that, the reason why I point that out, is to show that the love of Christ, even it, it, when it moves toward us, is never unrealistic. It's, it, it's never coming at us in a way that doesn't understand what we're actually going through. But instead, it's a love that understands it's a love that he that, that, that moves toward us with affection because he himself has experienced what we're going through. Whatever trial and storm it is, he himself has experienced it. And more than that, he's experienced it in a way that even goes above and beyond what we have. Because, you know, whenever we go through suffering or we go through trial, what tends to happen, almost as a means of self-protection and self-preservation, we, we kind of get this jadedness to our heart. When we go through suffering, we, we close off so often a piece of us in order to protect ourselves from the real pain of suffering. But Jesus Christ did not do that. There's this old uh, book called The Heart of Christ that was written by a Puritan, and he shows how God, in the midst of suffering, kept the heart of Jesus always tender. It was never jaded or hardened by suffering, but instead was always tender. And because it was always tender, he felt every sorrow to its full blow. It was never blunted by hardness in his heart. It was never blunted by the jadedness of his spirit. But instead, he had a sensitive and tender heart that always felt the sorrow to the death. There's a reason the Bible describes him as a man of sorrows. And he, above every other man, having a heart that was tenderized and sensitive to feel the full weight of suffering. This is good news. This is good news for sufferers. To know that, okay, it's great news that the love of Jesus moves toward me in danger. But it's even better news to know that when that love gets to me, it never is divorced from the experience of real life. But is incredibly realistic, incredibly empathetic. Because he himself knows what it is to suffer. He himself knows what it is to go through storm and trial. And that's what we want when we're in a hard place. When we are in suffering and trial, we don't want people to come and just talk at us. 
We want people to come and sit with us. When you're in the hospital room, when, you, when you're going through that trial, you don't want someone to just come talk at you, some theological truth or some kitschy, catchy statement. No, you want them to come and weep with you. You want them to come with a sense of understanding, even though they're not in it in that moment, a sense of understanding of what you're going through that, that serves you, that, that is good for you, that doesn't try to fix you or fix what you're doing or what's going on, but simply sits with you. That's what we want in grief. As, as Diane Langberg says, the psychologist, when you sit with a griever, your work is to be with them where he is, not drag him out where you are more comfortable. I love that. That, that, that idea of going to someone in grief and wanting to just, because we're uncomfortable, we're, we're, we're uncomfortable going into that situation. We want to drag them out to where we're more comfortable. We don't feel very, you know, uh, versed and, and, and well when, it, when we're meeting with someone who's suffering. And so we just throw these kitschy, catchy statements at them in order to draw them out to where we feel more comfortable, in order to cheer them up so that we feel more comfortable. Jesus Christ never does that. The love of Jesus never tries to draw you out where he's more comfortable because, friends, he's comfortable in the suffering. He's comfortable meeting you there in the trial and in the pain because he himself knows it to the core, to the depth. And that's good news that, that, that these, you know, not being separated from the love of Christ, that's why that's good news because his love comes at us in a way that's utterly realistic, that meets us where we're at and doesn't just immediately try to drag us up into, have faith, just trust, but first comes to us where we are. Meeting us in love. Not dragging us out into a place that we're not ready to be at while we're suffering. But rather, meeting us where we are. That's the love of Jesus. And that's good news as we suffer and go through trial. And so those are, those are two ways in which the love of Jesus can can, it, that's why it's good news that trial cannot separate us from the love of Christ because the love of Christ is what we need in the midst of suffering. We need someone who will come toward us. We need someone who will come toward us and then understand us. That's that reliable source of power that we can tap into during unexpected seasons. And to close this sermon, I, I, I just want to say I have felt just a sense of a, 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 a pastoral burden this week. For those of you who are suffering and in trial, because here's the truth, you know, yeah, let, let, let's talk about this. There's a lot of talk around what is in many ways a buzzword right now called deconstruction. That, that, that many men and women are what they call deconstructing their faith. And I found that most often the way that starts and even the energy behind their deconstruction that eventually ends up in them leaving the faith, the energy behind that, what's pushing that, is despair. Is a sense of doubt and a, a, a sense that they are alone. It, it seems like very, 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 very few people deconstruct out of some intellectual problem. But instead, it's an emotional pain. Something happened. Something was said, some experience 
they went through that then leads them to deconstruct what's, what, what they believed all along. And that's not new. That's not new. When you read uh, you know, the, this book called The Pilgrim's Progress written by John Bunyan, the second best-selling book of all time right behind the Bible. It's this story of this, uh, of this main character called Christian uh, who is on this journey. And it's a very long journey in which he's headed toward the good land, the promised land. And the whole time he's, he's meeting up against, he's bumping up against temptations to turn back on his journey and go back to what he knew. But again and again and again, he resists. He resists temptation, and he's certainly lured in by it for a short amount of time, but he never, the only time in that story in which he thinks, I should turn around. I should leave this journey and go back to what I think I had that was safe, is when he's in what's called the, the, the castle of despair, and he's getting blown away by doubt. He's getting, uh, th there's actually this, this, this villain called Doubt that is pummeling him while he's in this castle of despair. And that's the only time on his journey that he actually thinks, I should turn around. This is no longer worth it. This journey, wherever it's headed, is not worth it. I need to turn around and go back to where I feel is safe. And I love that John, John Bunyan put that in there. Because I think that's the truth of our experience. That we're, in, that we're in this castle of despair, getting pummeled by doubt. Those are the most poignant times in which we think, this Christian journey, I'm done with it. I can't do it anymore. But if we have, friends, if we have a love that can never be separated from us in the midst of trial, that nothing we do can distance us relationally from God, then we can make it through that castle of despair, that dungeon of despair. We can actually walk through it. We can move toward him. And so friends, I would encourage you, if you are in a season of suffering and trial right now, and just like that main character Christian are getting pummeled by doubts, I would encourage you, I would exhort you as strongly as I can to let your heart be open to the love of Jesus that will meet you in that trial, that will meet you in that suffering. The, the, one of the quickest ways for your suffering to go even worse is for you to be separated relationally, distancing yourself relationally from God because you think that he's not coming for you. But if there's a love that will always come towards you and will come towards you in realistic ways, then you don't have to begin to go through this, what is really a, a surface deconstruction that at its core is emotional pain. But that emotional pain can be answered through the love of Jesus Christ. And so if you, if you are in suffering, if you are in trial right now, friend, I would just tell you, don't close your heart to the love of Jesus. Don't let doubt begin to slowly melt away. And I mean emotional doubt. I'm not even talking about intellectual doubt. Don't let that doubt that's sourced in emotional pain distance you 
from a love that can meet you no matter what trial you're in. And not just meet you, but sustain you. So I, I, I would exhort you to, to even in suffering move toward this one who loves you. Refuse hopelessness. You even, even in suffering, you have the agency to do that. To moment by moment sometimes do that, certainly. But you have the agency, the power to be able to refuse hopelessness, refuse cynicism, and move toward God. To seek Him, to open your heart to Him. It's like, it's like a, the theologian J.I. Packer said, uh, he talks about, uh, don't let go and let God, trust God and get going. We don't just let go and let God throw out that kitschy statement. But instead we trust God and we get going. We get moving toward Him because we trust Him. And then as you trust Him, as you move toward Him, refuse coping mechanisms and sinful substitutions. In the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your trial, you are going to be uniquely and powerfully tempted to, like that main character Christian, turn back to what you knew. Don't do that, friends. Don't run back to cope, <coughs> excuse me, to coping mechanisms and sinful substitutes that in the end just harden our heart. The things that we run to harden our heart and devolve us even more causing more pain in the midst of suffering, but rather open your heart to this love that wants to move towards you, that wants to meet you where you are, and friends can actually give you joy. We're going to, we're going to talk about that next week, the way in which the love of Christ, really specifically the love of God in Christ Jesus, releases us from just being a victim of our suffering, but actually using our suffering to move us forward. But for right now, open your heart. Pray and say, God, I need to experience your love. I need to know that I'm not alone right now and that I do not have to figure it out on my own. I don't have to endure this alone. But rather, your love can sit with me, perfectly comfortable with me even in the midst of suffering, and can give me joy, a sense of seenness and safety. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that your love toward us is active, God. It's active and then it's also actual. It comes to us in realistic ways. Not expecting us to have it all together. Not commanding that we simply get over it in any way. But meeting us in our pain. Father, I pray that that great love would open our hearts to you. That it would cause our hearts to bloom before you, opening that, that your love would be the sun in which the flower of our heart blooms and opens up to receive its life from God. Even in what feels like unimaginable drought and danger. Father, would your love sustain us? Lord Jesus, I thank you that you have done the work to cover us, so that even when we fail in our suffering to come to you, we are still forgiven and we still have a safe place. Give us the strength to move towards you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.